Okay, so this morning, if this is your first time with us, we are right in the middle of our series called The Big O. Um, and so the basic goal of this series is to ask, you know, to look at the fact that sometimes the plan of God is more shocking than it is safe. And if we're honest, if you were raised in church, and that's not everybody here, but if you are here and you were raised in church, then that statement alone is shocking, right? We were kind of raised to think that church is safe and people love you and then... We start to realize, wait a second, it's a little more shocking than that. Um, the first week, we learned this, that God wants us to give him our worst. That was the shocking statement. We saw that God is the best at taking our trash, right, and repurposing it into treasure for his kingdom. And then last week, Eugene, Eugene did a great job last week. It was fantastic. There he is over there. Good job, Eugene. Eugene got up last week and totally corrected what I said the week before. Because I said the first week we should give God our best, and, I mean our worst. And then last week Eugene went, no, no, give God your best. And it, it's, at first you're kind of like, wait, I don't understand how those two go together. But what Eugene taught us last week is that God gave us his best. Amen? He gave us Jesus. He gave us his very best. And because he gave us his best, now because our hearts are full of gratitude, we want to give him our best back. We want to give them our best efforts. We want to give them our best worship, our best time, our best offerings. And so today, we are going to look at what I think may possibly be the most shocking thing Jesus ever said. Now, he said a lot of things, right? Because if you have a red-letter Bible, then you know he said a lot of things. There's lots of red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I believe that this may be the most shocking thing that he said. If we get this, if we really understand this, then our walk with Jesus, our faith with Jesus is going to look a lot like these guys. I brought some pictures. Um, that might be Tyrone. It may be Tyrone. I don't know. Jumping out. A little cliff jumping. I think we have one more. Now, that's what happens when you're with a group of people and they go, hey, I bet you won't. <laughs> then you all do. Um. This morning, if you're like most people, the, the idea of maybe jumping off a cliff might not get you pumped up. You know, when, when I asked you if you would go three times, if your chute didn't open, most of us are like, never, not me. Um, so it's possible that some of you this morning, when I read this statement that Jesus made, you're not going to be the one that goes, yeah! You're going to be the kid on the side of the pool doing this a million gazillion times while their dad's like, come on! Really, I'll catch you. I'm not a mean dad. I will get you. It's okay. Come on. Here I go. One, two. Right? That could be you this morning. I don't know where you're going to fall in all that, but what we're going to do is this. I'm going to read you the statement. And we're going to break it into two parts just to make sure we fully digest what he's saying. Um, it's found in the first book of the New Testament. That's Matthew. Somewhere two-thirds of the way through your Bible, you'll find Matthew. It's the very first book of the Bible. This is going to take place in the fourth chapter, the 19th verse. Now, this is the third recorded statement of Jesus. I'm sure he said a lot of things when he was a small child, right? Um, parents of small kids, do they talk? A lot. So I'm sure Jesus said a lot of things before we get to this point. But in the Gospels, this is the third statement that Jesus ever made publicly to somebody else, which says this to me. In church, we... What's the nice word to say it? Um, we never say hard things, right? We want people to feel relaxed and comfortable, so we try to smooth over the truth. We say it, but try to say it in a way that everybody kind of goes, oh, that's not too bad. But Jesus, like the third time he's talking to somebody, says the statement that we're going to read. 
He didn't wait around. He made sure he said it right up front. He said, this is what I am about. He made the most shocking statement on his third conversation. It's Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. And here's the statement that he makes. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, you've possibly heard that before, and you're like, that's not shocking at all. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break it up into two parts. You've got note sheets. First part is this, follow me. Just two words, right? That's it. Just two words. Sounds simple enough. But here are some of the things that that statement implies. Movement. Jesus said, follow me. It implies movement. It implies that, you know what? If you're going to follow me, you can't sit where you are. You have to get up. You have to begin to move. It implies direction. We may not know where we're going, but we are going somewhere, right? I mean, how many times do you say to God, I would just like to know what my life will look like in two years? Forget two years. I'd like to know in two days. If you're at the end of the month, the money's tight, I'd like to know in a day, right? I just, can I just know a little bit ahead? We might not know where we're going, but if you, if you hear the words, follow me, it implies that there is a new direction, Whichever way you were going, now you're going to go a different. You're going to follow me. I'm going this way, and you're going to come with me. And we might not know where we're headed, but we know we're going somewhere. The third thing that it implies, and this is huge, is trust. If we don't know where we're going, how much more important is it for us to trust who's leading us where we don't know where we're going? I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but you follow somebody through traffic, and then you think you're following the same person, but you got behind somebody with an identical car. And then you're like, where am I? Flagging them down and go, oh, crap, that's not them. I don't know where I am. I mean, you got, you got to trust. You've got to know the person. You've got to trust them. I, I wanted to do this this morning, but we won't. But can you imagine if we just, like, took Eugene and blindfolded him and put him in the back corner over there? And then we just took all the chairs and scattered them all around and just said, hey, Eugene, go to the other corner. <laughs> it would be fun to watch, wouldn't it? And he would eventually get there, right? He'd knock over some chairs and stuff like that. And it's hard to kind of know. But what if we said to Eugene, we're going to do the same thing, but this time we're going to actually, we're, we're going to let Wendy lead you. She can't touch you. She's just going to call to you. What's Eugene listening for? I hope Wendy's voice. It would be hard to hear above the laughter of us as he you know, like walks into chairs and stuff. But, you know, he would listen for her voice. You've got to trust Jesus if you're going to follow Jesus. And just something that we all kind of know is true, but we're learning it again. I'm learning it again because my sons are driving now. I thought that was wrong, didn't you? The way they groaned just then. Y'all are good drivers. They are good drivers. Although the other day they were driving and I found myself reaching behind the seat and grabbing Wendy's leg. You know, it just I just was like, oh. And so what I'm learning is, you know, the amount of trust we have is what actually determines the amount of joy we have on the journey. Okay, you didn't get that. So what I've done is I brought a clip, a video clip, that I know that you've probably seen a million times, but I'm always looking for excuses to show video clips that I love, and this is one of my all-time favorites.
So the things that we've learned, Janice is the worst aunt ever, right? <laughs> but how much you have faith in something really does impact the journey, doesn't it? Because neither one of them are falling out, although I will admit it looked possible. But he's not going anywhere, and she's laughing the whole time, and he is peeing his pants the whole time. Because he's freaked out and scared. And listen, th the journey is impacted by the faith. Uh, we use this illustration a lot. You can get on an airplane. When we go to India, this is what we'll see. There will be people on, on the plane that are like reciting, rubbing the rosary, the Hail Marys, all that. Because they will not enjoy the flight at all. Because they're so scared we'll crash. And then there will be people, we won't see them because they'll be in first class, but they'll be kicked back and they'll be, you know, snoring and drooling and sleeping and just, and they won't, it's like they're not even on the plane. Who's getting to India? Both of them. But only one enjoyed the flight. How much you trust Jesus determines how much you enjoy Jesus. So why are Christians so doggone sad and mad and freaked out and never smiling? They don't trust Jesus. Because how much you trust him affects how much you enjoy him. The fourth thing that it implies is surrender. And this might be the hardest one of all. Following someone means that they get to call the shots. And our leader has got to be our Lord. And that's really hard. That's a hard sell in America, right? It's probably a hard sell everywhere, but it feels like it's hard in America because we like to call the shots. We like to feel like we have control. And so for Jesus to say, follow me, that is shocking. Because what he's saying to you is, surrender your life and your choices to me. And trust me to take you where I want you to go. And so we, we read it, follow me, and go, oh, yeah, that's great. I mean, now David Platt has a best-selling book called Follow Me. And it's this radical thing. 
No, it's like what Jesus said the third time he talked to people. It's not radical at all. This is just Christianity. We follow Jesus. It impacts the things that we do because we're following someone else. If you're really type A and you play follow the leader, then you're the one back there going, nah, you didn't do it right. You're supposed to throw your arm up like that. The leader can't be wrong. That's why it's follow the leader. We can't tell Jesus he's doing it wrong just because we don't like it. So movement, direction, trust, surrender. Suddenly two words are a lot more than three syllables, right? Suddenly they change everything and they cost everything. And the people that say that they're all in on following Jesus can find themselves in pretty unexpected places. Here are just a few from the Bible. Just a few places. People that said, I'm all in on following God. Here's some of the few places that they found themselves. One, Abraham. He finds himself walking up a mountain to kill his only son. Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to give you the, the references because I don't want you to think I'm making this stuff up. So there's a man walking up a mountain with his only son because God told him to go there and sacrifice his son to him. Which we just read, again, we, talk, we read the weird out of the Bible all the time. But that's just weird. I mean, I know, parents, that there are days that you're like, I don't need to go up a mountain. I'll do it right here. Right? But we're just joking. Usually. But for God to say, hey, Paul, take Will about this age and let's go up a mountain and how about you sacrifice will to me well parker's immediately glad that god told me to take will am i doing that and if i'm doing that how's the conversation go with wendy no god said what i mean husbands we, we can't even convince our wives that god said to stop shopping there's, there's no way we're convincing them that god said to sacrifice their sons he found himself there because God said go. David found himself staring straight into the belly button of a giant. 1 Samuel 17. John the Baptist found himself in prison just before his head became the gift at a king's birthday party. Matthew 14, 1 through 12. Jesus in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus finds himself in the desert, locked in a battle with the devil after 40 days of no food and no water. And why is that so important? We've talked about this before because Matthew 4, 4 1 says this, that Jesus was led by the Spirit to that place. So when we say we're all in on following God, those are the kind of places we can end up in. Um, Peter finds himself stepping from a wooden boat deck into the spotlight on a watery stage, Matthew 14. 22 to 33. And then Jesus finally, in Matthew 26, 36 to 46, Jesus is in a garden praying, staring down the barrel of a loaded cross. These are not the places that we volunteer for, right? I mean, these places make keeping nursery look like a party. But we don't even want to do that. When we say, follow me, these are the places that we can end up. The point here is that Jesus can and probably will lead us to risky places. It's shocking, unsafe situations. So the question is this, why? I mean, you ever find yourself doing hard things and it's like, if you could just figure out the reason why you're doing it, suddenly it's okay? 
Why am I doing this? Oh, because that's right, because there's a payoff. The question for why is Jesus doing this is found in the second part. So follow me. And then he says this, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Look, doing risky things is stupid unless there's a payoff. So people that jump out of planes, unless there's a paycheck involved, but if you willingly volunteer to jump out of a plane, what's the payoff? The payoff is the adrenaline rush, right? We love, we're, we're seeking a thrill. We get a thrill, especially if the chute doesn't deploy. Like, talk about getting your money's worth and more. And if your backup chute doesn't deploy, hey, at least you went out with a thud, right? <laughs> we seek a thrill, we get it. But Jesus leads us to risky places for a better reason than a thrill. And here's what it is. He is, and I want you to look at the person next to you. Don't say anything to him. Just look at him. Go ahead. He is making us into something new. That person you just looked at, Jesus calls them to follow him for one reason, so that he can make you something new. That's such good news. Here's what it implies, just a few things that it implies. One, it implies fresh starts. And here's what that means. It means that no matter what you've done all of your life till right now, it is 11.02 on September 22nd. Whatever you've done all your life up to 11.02 today, doesn't matter. Your grace is enough. And so today when he says, follow me and I will make you, it means you get a fresh start. What matters is what happens beyond today. Here's the second thing that implies. It implies process. We are being made. I love this. He didn't say, follow me, and you will be fishers of men. You are fishers of men. He said he would make us fishers of men. So here's your Greek lesson for today, okay? The Greek word here for make is poieo, and it's not really important what word it is. It's more important how the word is used, and this is stuff that I'm not smart enough to know unless I look it up somewhere, but apparently you can parse verbs, I thought parse was like parsley, stuff you put on food, right? You can parse verbs, and here's what it means. You figure out like the mood, the voice, and all that, and some other stuff that teachers know and I don't. But here's what it means for us in this passage. The Greek word for make, the verb here is a future active indicative. And everybody said amen. Amen. We don't know what that means. Uh, It's future active indicative. Awesome. It's like when you open up a present at Christmas and you're thanking the people that gave it to you and you don't know what it is. Here, here's what it means, okay? I want you to make sure you get this, all right? Make sure you get this because there's a process involved in him making us. A future, it means this. It points to the certain occurrence of an event that hasn't happened yet. In other words, here's what it means for us. The person you looked at earlier, this is what it means. It's a future verb. You're not the person that you will be, but you will be. It's a certain occurrence. So Jesus, through the writers of the gospel, he writes this word that says it's guaranteed. It is a certain occurrence. You aren't what you will be, but you will be. It's active. It means that the subject does the action. That's critical because Jesus said that he would make us fishers of men. He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He did not say, follow me and make yourself fishers of men. But if we're honest, 
most of what we've experienced in church is program after program after program to help us make ourselves fishers of men, to help us make ourselves something different. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I will make you. I will make you something new. It reminds me of um, a verse, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He, Jesus said, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I love that. The indicative is a simple statement of fact. If something will really occur, it's written in the indicative mood. So what does that mean? It means that you will be made into something new. No doubt about it. Well, that's not possible, Paul, because, like, you don't know me, and I screw everything up. Yeah, welcome to humanity. But you and I aren't making ourselves something new. Who's making us new? Jesus. He will do it. And he will do it. There is process. Sometimes um, we're bad about this. You'll have to hear this when we get back from India. And we'll get back from India, and all of us will get up and on this platform. We'll kind of give testimonies about India, and, and we'll try not to say stuff like this. You suck. Was that too blunt? I mean, we don't actually say that. We just say that, right? We'll get up on the platform and go, if you were like the people in India, you'd cram 500 people in this space. You wouldn't care if that projector doesn't work and the lights don't work. You would just be like in love with Jesus. But you're Americans. That's what we do. You go to some other church that's having a revival, you come back, you're like, you're not pumped about the revival, you're just like, man, y'all are dead. Yeah, that's really motivating us to be better, thanks. And you're a jerk. Because you forgot something, and here's what we forgot. And I really want you to get this. Because I need you to get this, and you need me to get this. If you're in a community group, you need your leaders to get this. And if you're in a community group, you need to get this for the people that are in your community group. There's a process involved in this. It means that you could possibly, potentially, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say that you are five steps further down the road than I am. But that doesn't mean I'm not on the process too. So when we start to judge each other, well, you don't love Jesus like I love Jesus. Because I read the Bible for five minutes a day and you can't even do it for one. We don't have a right to do that. Because there's a process involved here. It's good to be passionate. It's good to be wound up. It's good to think that, man, I'm closer to Jesus than I've ever been. But that doesn't mean that people that aren't where you are don't love Jesus. If they've made the choice to follow him, then there's a process. And what it means is it's a future it's an active and it's an indicative, which means they might not be where you are, but someday they will be because he will do it. And that's really good news. Like that'll make you love your spouse more. Maybe it's not that powerful. It'll make you love you more. Those days that we thought about when we closed our eyes earlier and you thought of all the things you did this week that were bad, it'll make you get past those days quicker because you'll just repent. God, I'm sorry, but I'm following you and you're going to make me into something new.
So it, it implies fresh starts. It implies process. It implies identity. He didn't call them to fish. He called them to become fishers. Do you see the difference? One is what we do. The other is who we are. There's a huge difference. Some of you, I know this is true because you're like me. Some of you do not like to do Christian things. Is that fair to say? We don't like to do Christian things. But you weren't called to do Christian things. You were called to be a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you end up doing Christian things. That's like me saying, I don't really like walking on two feet. I'm just going to start walking on all fours. It's like upright stuff. It stinks. Stupid. I don't want to be like you. I'm tired of it. This is all we do. Right? I mean, please tell me that none of you walk around on your hands and feet all day long. You walk like this because this is what humans do. This is how we walk. We don't think about it. We just do it. We're not called to do Christian things. We're called to be followers of Jesus. And if we are following Jesus, our actions naturally come out of our identity. So they didn't have to wake up one day and go, hmm, today, oh, God, i got to go fish for men. They were fishers of men. He gave them a new identity. So when we find ourselves, and look, I'm just being real, okay? When we find ourselves where we don't want to do Christian things, like, God, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to pray. Oh, I'm going to go to church, but only because they got coffee. I'm just, I don't want to be around people. I mean, we all have those days, right? Surely I'm not the only one. But the response to that is not to try to somehow work it up to want to do it. The response to that is, oh, God, there's a part of me that's still not really following you and letting you make me. So will you take this in me and make it better? It's a big difference. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to make ourselves want to do things. Instead of letting Jesus make us into a new creation. It implies purpose. We're almost done. It implies fresh starts, process, identity, and purpose. There is meaning to your life when you follow Jesus. The purpose of your life is to know Jesus and to help other people know Jesus. Near God, near man, making disciples. It's who we are. And because it's who we are, it's what we do. The obvious question becomes how. And this is the part that I really want you to get. How does Jesus make us into fishers of men? How does he give us a new identity? How does he give us a new purpose? And he does it by leading us into places and situations that cannot be conquered except by Jesus alone. Um, I got this book here, Reinhard Bonnke. He's a great, great speaker, great evangelist. I was going to read you like five pages because they were that good, but I've whittled it down to just two paragraphs. Um, This is how he tries to sum this up, okay? He says, the hallmark of God's work in us is that he dispatches us into worlds that nobody else has ever conquered. Study the story of Peter walking on the water. Three miles out on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples saw Jesus gliding toward them on the water. They shrieked themselves hoarse with superstitious terror, thinking that he was a ghost. Jesus called to them, it's I. Now, Peter knew Jesus. He knew the only person in the whole universe 
who could tell him to do the impossible was Jesus. And that was the test of Jesus' identity. Peter challenged the apparition, saying, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus challenged him. Peter walked on the waves to Christ. That was a manifestation of the gift of faith. Now, here's the part that I really want you to get. Jesus is the one who calls men and women to be greater than they thought themselves to be. If you're thinking of following Jesus, you should know that he is like that. He does not call you to hold a lily or pick buttercups. The tongue-tied will preach. Fishermen become fishers of men. Harlots become lovers of God. Cripples walk. That shows it is Jesus, the true God, who sends you to undertake what you would normally never consider. Listen, everybody wants to do the impossible, but nobody wants to be in places that demand impossibility. I want to have these great testimonies in my life. You want to have great, you've heard people share testimonies. You just go, man, that's amazing. But you don't want to be in a place that's so close to the edge that only God can come through. God does the impossible through us by putting us in situations that are impossible to us. And when you say, yes, I will follow Jesus, I will allow him to make me a new creation. He's going to lead you to places that require you to trust him more. They will be uncomfortable to you. They will be risky to you so that you have to trust him more. So let's just sum it up like this. Um, the two parts. Follow me means that we can't stay where we are. Everybody say, hallelujah. I'm going to be moving to somewhere besides Albemarle, right? I can't stay where I am. That's not really what it means. I mean, physically, he might move you. He might move you to Indonesia. He might move, move you to Mexico. That's a great story. You should tell it sometime. Larry and Carol going to Mexico, just following Jesus. He might move you to another city, another state. He might move you to another job. He might do that. But spiritually, when we follow Jesus, it means that we can't stay where we are. We can't just sit back and say, here I am, God. Lead me. And wouldn't you like to be God and see somebody do that? Go ahead and lead me. I dare you. When we say, yeah, I'll follow you, it says we're not going to stay where we are. And when we say, I will make you, what that means is we can't stay who we are. So let's sum it up. Here's the big idea for today. Where God is taking you explains who God is making you. Where God is taking you explains who God is making you. Let's break this down, make it really practical so you totally get what it means. It means that when we say yes to following Jesus, we say yes to anywhere he takes us because we know he's using those situations to make us into the people he wants us to be. Here's a real practical example of how that can work. Anybody got a job with people that drive you nuts? All right. Anybody go to school with people that drive you nuts? Okay. So we all have something in common. Nuts. Right? Okay. People that are everywhere. These kind of crazy people are everywhere. Is it possible that God has led you to a job, a class, a situation with people that drive you nuts because 
He knows that he needs to develop you as a patient person because there's an impossible situation that you are going to face that he can only use a patient person to work through. See, we spend a lot of time asking God to deliver us from places that he may very well have put us in because he wants to develop us instead of deliver us. So the next time you're in class <laughs> and those people are driving you crazy, what you want to do is punch them in the face. But instead, you put your hands in your pocket and you say, God, you have led me here because you are making me something. And this situation will help me be what you want me to be. If you're facing an impossible situation, something bigger than you can handle, then you're just like David. David was teaching, Jesus was teaching David, God was teaching David that there was no giant that was bigger than his God. He was preparing him for a battle that he might have fought, but God won. And so if you're facing something that's totally impossible, is it possible that God has put you there, led you there, so that you could learn that he is greater than anything you can face? God never puts us in hard places for no reason. He never wastes our pain, he always uses it to shape us, to make us people who look like and point to Jesus. Let me just say it one more time, and then we're going to wrap this up and spend some time praying. Where God is taking you explains who God is making you.